Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, episode 66. Yeah, fix that. Because last week, Mm -hmm. we thought it was 62, and it wasn't. It was 65, which means this week should be 66. It is. Yeah, we could have retired last week. Oof. I was, see, that was a we good can, one. I'll, okay, you know, sure. 65 years. Okay, I get it. I'm I'll done. give you that one. Um, so, do you know what happened on this day in The Lord of the Rings? No, but I'm so excited to hear. This is actually... So, I, I'm not 100% clear. I didn't go fully down the rabbit trail. But I do know, I'm pretty sure it was on January 15th that the immortal words of Gandalf were spoken, which are, I'm cold. shall not pass. And I don't, actually, I don't even know if that's a correct quote because it's quoted commonly one way. Might be, you cannot pass. I don't know what it actually says in the book, but I'm pretty sure they crossed the bridge of Khazadum wow. on January 15th. Wow. So then they've come out of the mines of Moria and they go into Lorien. And so... Starting in, I think it's on the 17th through February 17th. They're, they're there in Lorien for a month. So right now the fellowship uh, slightly broken because of Gandalf's absence. Um, he could still be fighting a Balrog. I actually don't know how long it took for him to defeat the Balrog. But uh, the, the fellowship is in, uh, in Lorien with, with the elves in Galadriel at this point. Their entry in DeLorean was very different in the book. I thought that part yeah. was really fun. Yeah. Well, and there's there's actually some really deep Middle Earth Easter eggs with what happens in Lorien. Mm. A very common meme on Mets is like, it's been circulating last week, is what is the significance of Lady Galadriel giving Gimli oh, yeah. uh, pieces of her hair? And that actually goes way back to um, like before the creation songs like are in that, in that venue of the Silmarillion and like the, the tales of middle earth. And, um, have you ever read the Silmarillion? No, I've started it twice. So I have it's all of the volumes of the collected works of Tolkien, uh, like middle earth related. Mm-hmm. And I would like to read through some of it this year. Ooh. Okay. Uh, it's just, it's dense and there's, I, I will say, there's not as much profit in that as there is in the actual stories. Did you did you think it read? I mean, I think it does. It reads more like a history book. Oh, that's that's because it's, not, it's exactly what yeah. it is. Like, it's so funny the way Tolkien he isn't thinks. creating lore for the sake of his fiction. He's just he he created this world, and this is literal history in that world. It's so cool. It's, it's and it's not. There's not benefit of it outside of that function. But it does it does connect dots in his world building. So, anyway, <laughs> uh, I think I know enough to know that I don't really care to read the uh, Silmarillion. <laughs> Thanks, guys. To, it looks really. I mean, I there's. <laughs> I think I just I need to do it to yeah. say that I did it. There you oh. go. Hey, Charlie, what's your book count at? Three. Very nice. But I've started six or seven, <laughs> um, and I'm close to four being done. Okay. Um. I think I think it needs to go in in pages. I think that's just a more representative function. Hmm. So I have to determine what I consider a book. And I think the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to go to the Lord of the Rings because each of those three books is broken into six books by mm-hmm. Tolkien. And I'm going to average the page length of a book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And then that's what I'm going to consider a, a finished book as I hmm. read through pages. Because there's some books I have like right now that I, I need to read for some classes that are like five, 600. So they would count as like two. Oh, okay. That's what, that's what I'm getting at. Okay. So count, counting a, a page, count, counting a page as, as a value rather than, oh, I finished this, this book. Cause inevitably I'd get to the end of the year and I need like five books. So I'm not going to reach for a 400 pager. <laughs> I would reach for, I'd reach for like, oh, let's go with Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, you know, like short sure. little ditty, you know? And, um, I'm going to stick to books because. So I'm, I think I'm going <laughs> to. It's just, it's going to be in the back of my mind. I still want to finish 75 books. Okay. But if I get to like 67, 
And I look at the page counts and I'm like, well, by page, if I considered a book 250 pages or 190 mm-hmm. pages, like I've actually finished 74. So like, you know, sure. have a moral, uh, moral uh, silver lining okay. when I don't meet my goal. Okay. Are you gonna um <laughs> are you gonna are you gonna adjust for font and page size? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not. Gotcha. Yeah. You guys are hilarious. <laughs> Tim's over here. He didn't even keep track of his reading. He just he just shoots from the hip. He doesn't even I care. I have not been able to read much recently. It's been bad, but uh it was the first week of school last week. I was buried. Yeah. Happy, happy. We, we didn't say this last week. Oh, yeah. Happy season four. That's thing, right. Because it's a new semester. The seasons mm-hmm. align with the semesters. So For us. Yeah. So, yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Cause, I don't know what we do about summer. Yeah. This summer is the, was its like That's own. weird to think about that. This is the yeah. fourth semester we've had this podcast. I know. It doesn't feel like that, does it? No. Well, it, it both doesn't feel like it, and it feels like we've been doing this forever. Yeah. Well, we did do this for like, if you count by semester- We have done this for like six semesters prior to us recording it. That means this is our 10th. Oh, brother. Oh, my goodness. Tim's eye rolls are off the charts today. (laughs) What? (laughs) That deep sigh was just funny. Okay, anyway. um, And listener, Tim is really cold right now, so he has his trench coat on, fully zipped up, and a moment ago he had his hood on. All that to say, happy Balrog Day, and... (laughs) Uh, I, I don't know. Okay, day. I'm a, I like I'm a, that. I Happy Balrog. I, I have to know now. What a, what a day to It was you cannot Balrog. pass. By the way, I looked it up. You cannot, cannot pass. pass. That's so I knew you shall not was not the right yep. quote. Shall How sounds long good. Did it take Gandalf to? It fills right in. Oh, it does it. I thought it filled right in. To kill the Balrog in the Third Age. Well, it's that's just talking about the Balrog. Yeah. Let's keep going. We don't need to know. No, 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 no. It's not we do need important. to know because I want to know if the seventeenth is Balrog Day. I think it is. We have officially called it Balrog Day. So there it it's is. Said, okay, here's, we can retcon it later. For what it is, this is a Reddit thread. How long did Gandalf fight the Balrog? <laughs> oh my goodness, it's better than um, this is ridiculous. And the, the top answer was ten days, starting in the darkest depths of the deepest caverns under Moria, all the way to the top of the mountain. The Balrog was fleeing for its life. Gandalf chased it up a staircase that led to the peak. Imagine that old wizard sprinting up countless flights of stairs, actively chasing a genuine fire demon. That's the that's the top wow. response on that Reddit thread. So if we go with ten days, we the ten next week days of Balrog days. <laughs> my true wizard gave to me. Oh brother, oh boy, three so, flaming well, swords. You're amazing. Well, maybe at maybe it's like maybe that's it's like the, the twelve days of Christmas. Yeah, it's the ten days of Balrog. Oh boy. Yeah. So what's te- so if it was ten oh days my. from the fifteenth, it'd be January twenty fifth next week. Yeah. So what would be the first day of Balrog if, maybe we just go with the thing and call it 12 days of Balrog. Oh, I think 10 days could work. Well, well, the 10 days would start on the day he fought the Balrog. Oh. So the, we're in the days of Balrog. Oh, there we go. In the days of the Balrog. The 10 days of Balrog starts oh, on January 15th. Ooh, and we're into, <laughs> we're, we're into <laughs> the days of, this is, so this would be 15th. This is the third day of Balrog. Okay. Anyway. Okay. Books so happy business. third day of Balrog, which means is next week the last day of Balrog then? Seven days from now? I mean, we, I motion we adjourn. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tim's that, done. All that to say, happy third day of Balrog. We have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. <laughs> <laughs> so I have content in the episode, so I'll go first. <laughs> the book I have with me, that's a great open right there. I know. That, that was you know, fun. Like with, when you talk about like TV shows and they have like cold opens, mm-hmm. that, that's a cold open right there. We didn't plan that. That just happened. Unscripted. That's beautiful. Anyway, the book I have here, uh, right on cue, is The Discipline of Discernment. <laughs> Should you be celebrating Balrog Days? <laughs> yeah. It's a pagan. It's, it is a fire demon. <laughs> Yikes. So, The Discipline of Spiritual Discernment, forward by John MacArthur, mm. written by Tim Challies. Johnny Mac. And uh, Tim Challies, mm-hmm. friend of the program. Friend of the program. And... Uh, yeah, I, I so this is a book assigned to me for one of my Doctor of Ministry classes, commonly referred to as a demon class, <gasps> right on theme. Man, light that class on fire and it'd be a Amen. Balrog. Amen. Uh, I liked it. I liked the book. Um, it's not that long. It is like 180, uh, officially, like pages you're actually reading things, like 180 pages. 
And it's it's about being able to discern truth from error, lie from truth. You know, he has other synonyms that he uses that are much catchier. Um, and he, what I really like about it is it's it's just it's basic thoughts from the scripture about how to discern what truth is. And there's a theme that comes up all over the place. Uses that as an illustration is that of like counterfeit money. And probably my lasting takeaway is when they train someone to identify a counterfeit, they don't train you to identify all of the errors that are being made. You don't have to focus on every falsehood. To identify a counterfeit, you just have to know the real thing really well. And so ultimately, I think the plea here is to really know what's true and to study the word. And so it's, I think it has a great heart behind it. Um, and uh, it's, it's, not, it's not technical. It's, it's a popular level. I think anyone can pick it up and it'll be helpful for their spiritual life. And so I think um, on my personal Instagram, I'm doing like, uh, I'm throwing every book I finish into a story. So like yeah. stories of 2022, if you go to my bio page, you can see them. I have three there now because this is book number three. And I there said I would give it a six, I think, mm-hmm. on the Thinkling's Goodness Scale. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure I could pin it as a six, but it's definitely in the like four to seven range. Okay. And I think I think depending on where someone is, like in in their spiritual life, I think this would be exceptionally good for a new believer. Exceptionally good. For, I wish I had something like this to read when I had just gotten saved, to really get my mind into understanding how to discern things, how to think. Um, but then you know, someone who's kind of been around the the block a little bit with you know reading a lot of things in like seminary, it's like. I don't think there was anything new in his book that I had never interacted with before, but it was just reminders of passages, which was really helpful. I think it it seems like it would be a good book to use as a tool with someone else. I could see that one. It's very accessible. And that, that illustration about counterfeiting, that's a money illustration right there. My my favorite story he told in there was about the counterfeit money in World War II. Remember reading that? Mm. So I read that book 10 years Great ago. Great Britain. So you'd have to remember. Yeah, where it's like there's this, the Germans were counterfeiting um, British and American money with the intent of flooding the economies to like ruin them during the war. Oh. And they never had a chance to do it. And they dumped a bunch of counterfeit bills into this lake. And he tells the story in the book and it just has nothing to do with the point he's making. I just historically that's a that's a really cool story. That is. I read that story. I wonder if I have read that book and just forgot about it. Maybe it was ten years ago. Well, I read it right when it came out, which probably was about then. It is a good book to read with somebody. My wife has actually read through that book with young ladies and um just learning discernment and trying to think and think through things and make wise decisions. Yeah. So the dis- discipline of spiritual discernment by Tim Challies, six on the Thinkling's goodness scale. Nice. So my book today is Brave by Faith by Alistair Begg, God-Sized Confidence in a Post-Christian World. So this book I was given, and I thought, okay, I'll read this. <clears throat> and it's I, I think it's interesting because I didn't mean to go on a, on a theme here, but if you think of Al Mohler's book, uh, The Coming... Oh, what the coming was the yeah. book the gathering storm yep and then you think of Erwin Luther's book we talked about we shall not be silenced both of those books are attempting to talk about today's and then Spider-Man's book oh brother no not that one stop with the Tom Holland jokes actually did you see on Twitter it finally happened he was super excited Tom Holland tweeted us no 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 he didn't us no nothing like that <laughs> Spider-Man like Tom Holland the actor got confused for Tom Holland, the historian. Usually it's the other way around. Did it really? Yeah, he was really excited about it. But back to this. Did he comment on it? He did. He's like, ladies and gentlemen, it finally happened. And then he like retweeted it. It was great. I was like, wow, it went the other way. Tom Holland, the author, someone thought he was the Spider-Man. No, no, that's how it's always been. But then Tom Holland, Spider-Man, was confused as the one who wrote the book. Yes. I'm going to go to that post and I'm going to post something there and just like pray to the Lord's. (laughs) Lord's. We're the monotheist. Uh, <laughs> like that he sees it and and is like, oh yeah. Like, hey, we just talked about this book on a podcast. Would you like to comment on it? <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> so not him. But so, so the other two books are on what's going on in culture right now 
and where is it coming from? How's the secular um, influence happening? It's more of an informative work. And we talked about Lutzer being, Lutzer sort of promises to help you understand how to respond. And I think Tim and I both didn't think Lutzer's book, it was informative, but it didn't really give you a directive on how to act. And I liked, I liked Moeller's book. It was much more academic, but also, and it gave some input. Alistair Begg's book is almost only focusing on how to respond today. And I thought it was interesting. I liked it a lot in some ways because he's basically, he takes you through six chapters in the book of Daniel and says, how did they respond in that time period? There's a lot of really practical stuff to know how to live today. So I really liked it. There's a couple of other tweaks though. I, I found myself, and I'm not sure why, having a hard time finishing it. And I, I think it's because it is... I think it's if you've been through Daniel, there's there's not a lot of explanation that you're not going to be aware of. So it's it's good. It'd be like an entry level book in ways. But there's something about that at times he's very pithy and very memorable. And other times I felt like I was just trudging through the pages. So it's probably just I was tired or something. But then the other thing that I would say about it is he's uh, on a different page uh, when it comes to eschatology. So he said in this one page, he's talking about Jerusalem. He says, where is Jerusalem today? It's not the U.S. It's not in the U.K. Uh, it's not even in the Middle East. It's in heaven. And so I was really picking up, I, I forget, he's either on-mill or post-mill. And so if you're not on-mill or post-mill, you're going to read through this. There's going to be a lot to kind of ignore. So because of that, if, if, if the eschatology was less in the book, I would, I would say this is a pretty good book because he's taking you to the Bible and saying this is how to respond. And I did like the fact that here's Daniel, here's his friends, and what are they doing? They're trusting in the Lord, no matter how dark the days were. And I thought that was a good message for us today, because I do think there's a lot of alarmist Christians out there who are scared to death of what's going to happen. But because of that, I'd say it was a pretty good book. I would give it a, let's see what, I think I put it on, the, I, I think I put it at a, either a three or a four on the goodness scale. I would say it right around there. Three or four. This is okay. I'm glad I read it. I don't know if I'd recommend it, but I like that it was a little more, at least I was in the Bible in this one. You have questions about like the kingdom of God and Jerusalem. We're actually going to have an event called Faith Pulpit Day. It's on March 24th, and we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. I'll be doing one presentation uh, for that. So uh, if that interests you, put it on your calendar, March 24th. Uh, so for me, for my books and business, um, I am not doing a book. I'm going to do what I've been studying recently. So I, I, I preached last week on in seminary chapel, which is always nice because I only have like 10 people there. So if I really mess it up, then, you know, it's not really bad. But uh, that's where I practice preaching the song. Seminarians who are listening, he does care about what he's preaching to you. Oh, very much. Hey, that reminds me. I was up at camp this weekend and I went to the song and I told him, yeah, because what does a single guy have to say about the song? And then I was like, doesn't matter because truth is objective so it doesn't matter if you know but i was in the back of my mind i'm like i've heard tim say this enough i'm pretty sure it's true <laughs> but so what did you do go to the I adjuration just, I, just, refrain? I just quoted the three the three daughters yeah. of jerusalem yeah the adjuration refrain yeah mm -hmm. and just pointed out to them Amen. the standard of relational holiness that the bible sets forth uh -huh. which is not as long as i don't go all the way it's okay it's uh -huh. don't do anything unless you can go all the way, right? Which is catchy, so it works in a sermon. Um, but it's true. So you preached it. I it was it was a sub point of significance as we we're trying to apply um, another passage. So we're cool. trying to bring some ideas together. But anyway, good. Uh, so I've been recently studying through um, uh, Genesis three sixteen. You have the effect of the fall upon a woman, the pain and childbearing. Uh, her desire will be for her husband, and he will rule over her, that passage. The word there for desire is used three times in the Old Testament. I've been familiar with this. I've actually even assigned students readings on it because there's a fair amount of discussion about what is the this desire in Genesis 3.16. This word desire occurs also in Genesis 4.7 with Cain. Sin has a desire to uh, for Cain, but he should rule over it. Cain is supposed to rule over this desire and the word desire it could be like turning somebody some people argue that it's a turning so the woman's turning back to her husband um sin has a desire to turn towards cain 
And, and so there's a fair amount of discussion on it. And I've been studying through it again, studying through it anew, uh, because the most difficult, um, I don't know, those two in Genesis 3, 16 and Genesis 4, 7 are pretty similar. But then in Genesis, or in Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10, the woman says, I am my lover's and his desire, and it's that same word, his desire is for me. And so here it's a very intimate connotation. And it seems very separate, very different than Genesis 3.16 or Genesis 4.7. So I've been reading some articles, uh, the meaning of teshuka. Teshuka is the Hebrew word, uh, desire or turning, however um, you take it, by A.A. McIntosh. Uh, I was reading through uh, his article, some, and I've already forgotten what he had to say. Um, and then I was reading through Gelman and uh, Landy, and I have like five other articles or three other articles. But the common interpretation as far as like uh, conservative Christians is that it's like a desire to rule. A woman has a desire to rule over her husband in Genesis 3.16. And then the last phrase is, but he will rule over you. Like the order of creation is that the complementarian husband is the head of the household kind of a, uh, a view. Uh, but that was really challenging in Song of Songs 7.10 because there's no desire to rule. His desire uh, is for her, and it seems to be an intimate desire. So I actually do believe that it's actually some kind of like a, a egalitarian, complementarian discussion, and I might write an article on it this summer. So that's what I've been studying and reading. That's my books and business. Awesome. Uh, forgot to mention at the beginning. So I'm going to give just a quick preview of what's in this next episode, or not next episode this episode in the content that's following this right now. But we do want to mention that tomorrow, which is day four of the days of Balrog, also better known as January 18th. These are the days of the Balrog. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> your, your mic is muted. Why is it muted for that? I need to hear you when you It wasn't it. muted. It, it was wasn't? On. It was just really quiet. I mm. couldn't see it. Okay, anyway. Might have been on purpose that it was quiet. Yeah, sure. Um, so tomorrow, uh, what time? Three o'clock. Three o'clock. Location? Uh, Gray 104 on Gray campus at Faith Baptist Bible College. Uh, Gray 104 at Faith Baptist Bible College. If you're a student or in the area, uh, a friend of the program, Dr. Josh Boyd, has started what he's calling the Fundamental Lit, as in literature, uh, forum, where we are going to work through uh, this great books reader that has excerpts from classics, and then there are essays about those classics. It's just, it's not the full thing. It's just little, little excerpts and then an essay. And then we're going to, we're going to go through that as a group. It's every other week. And then we're going to come together after we've read specific texts and then kind of discuss them. And tomorrow is the first one. So if you're, if you're hearing this now, you're probably not going to be ready for it. But if you're hearing this before 3 PM on January 18th and you want to come, come. It'll be it'll be helpful for you. We're going to talk about reading good books. Is that a weekly thing? Every other week. Every other week. Yeah, he's going to do every other week, depending on his schedule. And uh, you know, uh, some of the readings are probably going to be challenging to you, um, but it's going to be worth your time. And uh, I know that uh, we're going to try to make an effort to be present at you know this. It's a it's a very thinklings minded activity and. Since we're you know a few steps away, I'm, I'm going to try and keep up on the readings and, and be there. And uh, but if you're a student hearing this and you, you want to get more of these types of things, fundamental lit is a great way to do it. And we want to support Dr. Boyd's efforts there. And so uh, if you have any questions, you can email him, um, and he'll he'll let you know what what they're reading and when. So uh, come to fundamental lit. It's going to be. I mean, you can't spell fundamental without fun that's right you'd be mental not to come and it will be lit <laughs> and it will be lit. how many funds can we make out of that one yeah. or other um anyway so what's in this episode this is going to be the start of a discipleship series um where it's kind of just an introduction to the idea of what discipleship is how god uh, disciples us how we learn from god and not just a knowledge uh acquisition idea but uh the end goal is is how is God transforming you and through you uh, demonstrating and uh, showing himself to other people. And so this is the start of that, and uh, I think there will be 12 of them. 
And as I say in the written introduction to this, why 12? 12 is an incredibly disciply number. I don't know why. <laughs> Excellent. I thought so, it was apostolic. Bull. There's 13 apostles, Tim. Because they formally, he just, he, he, he just tanked his he mic. He pushed his mic away <laughs> from his face. He's not even going to say anything. He's done. Well, okay, so enjoy this episode, and we'll see you next week. Let's have a conversation about discipleship. And so I think we've mentioned a couple of times in previous episodes that a discipleship series was coming. As Andy did a contentment series, and Tim always talks about Song of Songs, I'm like, what can I do a series about? <laughs> and uh, I think that probably the only thing that would qualify is something I've logged the hours into of study and then practice would be into discipleship. And uh, as a pastor, as the uh, former dean of men at Faith, and uh, still just as a guy in my church, uh, I, I would say that I'm very passionate about discipleship. And so uh, this is going to serve as kind of like an introduction to uh, what we're going to call 12 questions everyone should ask. 12 questions everyone should ask. And uh, like almost like that'd be a book title. I don't know. But anyway. So Sounds like a nice book title. Yeah. So let's say there's 12 of them, and you're like, why 12? Well, when you think discipleship, don't you think of the number 12? Absolutely. I mean, maybe 11, but we don't want to get hung up on that. Yeah. So we'll just move on. And um, <laughs> <laughs> is it too soon? Too soon for Judas puns? That was, that was, that was epic. <laughs> so we're, it's 12 questions. And what, what's the? let me just get to my Google Doc, and I can follow the script here. So- Here's the goal of what eventually I do hope to be a book, but for now is a podcast series. And the goal of this discipleship series is to help Christians engage daily in the sanctification process that God is accomplishing in them with a resulting goal. So there's like a corollary goal that as Christians are engaging daily in that sanctification process that God is accomplishing in them, so their personal discipleship, that that gets put on display for others around them. So there's subsequent disciples being made as a result of those of you that are listening or maybe reading about these ideas for your own personal sanctification, if that makes sense. Is that, is that clear to you guys? I'm following. It didn't sound clear as I said it, but I mean, it looks clear on the page. But So uh, to introduce this, I want to just define terms in, in a very Lewisian fashion. I want to define what I mean. So we're talking, you know, it's a discipleship series. So what is discipleship? What do you guys think is discipleship? I always think of following or copying. Following, following or copying. Those are my two go-to thoughts. Straight out of scripture, follow me. Learning. Learning. Yeah, and that would be like the general definition of that term in the scripture would be to be a learner. But I think... What I want to maybe posit is that this idea of discipleship, the broad idea, is not inherently Christian. Uh, obviously, God is the creator of everything, and so sure, it all goes back to him. But we've even talked earlier on this podcast about how there's this French guy who writes this kind of Greek uh, story epic of this uh, son of Odysseus, uh, and then... He's got this mentor, if you remember those episodes. Oh, yeah. So the idea of mentorship goes way, way back. And it's not purely a Christian thing. It's, it's present in many pagan mythologies and things like that. And it's, it's present very concurrently with ideas of wisdom. And so uh, I think we can draw a distinction between discipleship and Christian discipleship. That we have discipleship that happens in our world that is not in any way Christian. For example... Most mechanics learn from other mechanics. Yeah. Okay. Like yep. It's an apprentice. You know, you mm -hmm. learn how to do a job from someone. And that's a great metaphor for Christian discipleship. It's where you're, as a Christian, learning from another Christian how to be more Christian. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a, the best way of saying it. But no, that's, that was well said. Yeah. Only Dr. Puddleglum could say it better. Only Dr. Puddleglum. So... Uh, so if you're thinking of like the very big broad definition is discipleship. It's this mentoring, learning idea that's not inherently religious or Christian at all. 
then we narrow it down to Christian discipleship. Is Christians learning to be Christian from other Christians? And then underneath of the umbrella of Christian discipleship, you could even divide it out even further. Because I think there's personal discipleship and there's pastoral discipleship, where personal would be you personally concerned with your own sanctification. So like, I want to grow. But then a pastoral discipleship, whether or not you're a pastor, is you wanting somebody else to grow, and you may be discipling them, or you are being discipled by someone, and that's a, a pastoral role where someone is shepherding someone in their discipleship, as opposed to me engaging in my own personal discipleship. The goal of this book falls under the personal discipleship. The ideas will float into pastoral discipleship as you seek to invest in other people. But the goal of these 12 questions is that you're asking them, as the goal, as we already said, daily of yourself. So each day you wonder, like, man, am I really growing? Am I being discipled by God? Am I changing? Well, these questions are meant to be a reminder to funnel your thoughts and your energy towards where I think Scripture devotes your attention. And so uh, we're, we're going to start really broad with the questions, and then we're going to slowly narrow them down to try and hone in on personal Christian discipleship. Whew. How's that for an introduction? It's beautiful. Okay. it's good. Actually, if we were, Tim was using his affirmative word, he would have said stupendous. Ooh. Stupendous, Charlie. I'm really excited about this series. <laughs> stupendous. The opposite of horrendous. The opposite of horrendous. So that leads us to... <laughs> Question one. And question number one is, what is God's will? So I'm just going to throw it out to the table. When you hear that, if someone was to come to you and say, man, Andy, Tim, what is God's will for me? Maybe not what would you say, but what comes to your mind? How would you approach that question? They want to know who to date. They want to know that, who to that's date. That's probably what they're going to ask. Or they want to know yes. what job to take or they, you know. What should I, should I buy this big purchase I'm going to buy or something like that? That's usually when I encounter it and someone's asking that question, that's generally the context. Yeah. Like decisional things, like decision making. Like what does God want me to do here? Yes. Like how do I choose yes. which way to go? What am I supposed to be when I grow up? Uh, yeah. Where should I live? That kind of thing. That's usually sure. what I've encountered. Tim? Yeah. It usually has nothing to do with what God's will actually is in the Bible. <laughs> That's what you're talking about. It's sort of what I'm getting at. So yeah. God's will is that you be holy, and all of those things are how you're supposed to live in wisdom. And as you live in wisdom, guess what you're supposed to do through it all? Be holy. Yeah. So you marry somebody, and then what are you supposed to do? I like how Tim's dial has like a one on it and then a 10, and there's nothing in yeah, between. Yeah, there's nothing in between. <laughs> so we're, we're actually kind of honing in on where I want you to maybe think, when you ask yourself that question, I think the first natural inclination is, well, there's like a hundred ways to define that, right? You could, you could certainly, of every decision you make, like uh, rightfully say, well, doesn't God want me to do either this one or that one? I think that serves the reason and that those decisions would be in accord with whether he wants you to love that thing or that decision is loving him or not. Uh, but then you could also approach it from a, a theological sense. You could, you know, you can really get into some deep waters with defining God's will. So we are going to confine our discussion to what Scripture says. And there is a passage, there are multiple in fact, but there's one that we're going to start with that specifically says, this is the will of God. And then what follows is your sanctification. This is in 1 Thessalonians 4. And so that leads us into a, another subset of ideas. So what does God want? And we're in a discussion of personal Christian discipleship, like me wanting to grow, engaging daily into this process. And then I also learn in 1 Thessalonians 4 that God wants sanctification. So then throw it back out to the table. What is sanctification? How would you, if someone was like, what, what does that mean? How would you approach defining sanctification. Well, the Greek word is going to trade on the idea of being set apart. 
yep. or separated from or to. I think separated to. So, I mean, in a sense, we're separated to God. I guess maybe that'd be one way to, that'd be like the classic textbook answer, which would be biblical. Thoughts, Tim? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's got the idea of setting apart to grow in holiness. And so then building into, well, how does God make you holy? I don't know, maybe this is where you're going to go with the whole thing. All right, so I won't go into that anymore, maybe. I'll let you run <laughs> yeah. with it. So there's kind of the the triumvirate. I, I heard this at Faith. I'm sure other Bible college students have heard this, that there's positional sanctification, that there is, uh, well, maybe there's not three. What am I thinking of? No, there's there's positional, yes. progressive, and perfect, right? Perfected. Yeah. Perfected. But if it's a triumvirate, then one of those two has to get murdered, or one of those three has to get murdered, wow. and then one has to take over. Sorry, yeah, Western so teacher. It's like God has freed you from the, like when you're sanctified in salvation, you're free from the guilt of sin, but you're not penalty. free from, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you, the penalty of sin, but then you will be someday freed from the presence of sin, mm-hmm. uh, but right now, you're not. And so it's kind of intersecting some of those ideas of, you have been set apart as a believer, but that doesn't mean that you're done progressing. And that's the, kind of the idea of discipleship is this idea of progressive sanctification that I would, as a believer, whether personally or from another believer, grow in my Christianness, like grow in my Christ-likeness. And so that's what we want to focus on here. So what is God's will? It says, 1 Thessalonians 4, his will is sanctification and a dimension of sanctification in the scriptures, which I think Paul is hinting at in 1 Thessalonians 4, is progressive sanctification. The process that uh, every believer is in or should be engaged in where they're slowly becoming transformed into the image of Christ. And so what we want to kind of hone in is hone in on is how is that taking place? We're not going to answer all of those questions right here, but let's kind of gauge the flow of thought. So we've already said our focus is on a distinct category, Christian discipleship, and God's will and sanctification is to transform, and this is a question, what? So 1 Thessalonians 4, God's will is my sanctification, your sanctification, and that is a progressive change, but what is progressively changing? Did that question make sense? Yeah. Me? Me. So does that mean that as I'm being sanctified, that I'm losing weight? Well, it depends on what my vice is. Okay. (laughs) So what are we we connecting together there? Uh, Body and soul. Or body and soul. Yeah. Inner, outer. uh, The the dualistic nature of Christianity. There's two parts to us. And earlier, when I asked you to define what God's will is, what did both of you say? That usually... Believers flavor that question towards the the external, the external, yep, the, the outside. But when we want to get into a discussion of progressive sanctification, nobody in progressive sanctification is like, "Yeah, God really wants me to progressively be sanctified and lose that extra thirty pounds." Usually, that's not how we think through those questions, you know. But when we think about God's will, we normally do think that way. So, what's the difference between us thinking about sanctification? Not in an external way, necessarily, but when we throw out the question, God's will, it's usually this external choice type of language. Do you see the dichotomy that has set up there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's almost as though, I don't know if this is correct language, but sometimes we we think of the will of God as his plan outworked in our life, but we're not thinking of his internal plan. So it's almost like when Carson's uh, book on uh, spiritual reformation says, you know, when we're praying, we're often praying for these external, like grandma's broken toe and all that and our, our needs. But Paul is often concerned about our inner man. Like our, he, yeah. he's praying for that. Well, our eyes of our heart will be enlightened, that sort of thing. Yeah. And that's, so this is the point of question number one. When you ask yourself, hopefully daily, as you're attempting to engage in God's will, his sanctification process in your life, and you ask yourself, in your personal devotions, what is God's will? What you need to think about is that God's will is not just external. And God's will, I would say, starts 
internally. He wants just as much, if not more, than external obedience. He wants both. But he wants your heart, your character, your loves to be transformed. God's will and sanctification is to transform all of you. And yes, that means that you will start doing different things, but that's because you love different things. I, I tried to craft a good uh, phrase for this that is, you know, quote unquote original. You know, you're going to try and brand something in a book. So I'm, I'm trying to play off of the great uh, commandment or the, n- not the great commandment, the Shema, but it is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I mess up the order there when I typed it out. That's interesting. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And connecting that idea to God's will being internal, this is what God wants. God wants all of you to love only him. God wants all of you to love only him. And Amen. All of you loves only him is the way I have it written, but it doesn't quite roll off the tongue as well. And so for that will to be accomplished, it will be a transformation of your inner man accompanied with a obedience of your external man. And the focus of this question, what it's meant to help you do in your discipleship, is to help you address the inner man. You need to ask yourself, what is God's will? Well, does God want me to obey? He doesn't want me to go do that thing right now. Yep, you're right. He also wants you to love the right thing right now. He also wants you to think the right thing right now. He also wants you to direct your mind and your heart that's connected to your external obedience right now. And so as you ask yourself that question, what is God's will? What I want you, I think God wants you to remember, is that your mind, your inner man, is directly connected to your sanctification. And I have a whole bunch of verses that I think talk about this. So that's what I want to do at the end of this is just to walk through some verses. And then I think there's a really good illustration of the idea in 2 Corinthians. But first, just kind of shotgun some verses. So we've mentioned this one many times on the podcast, but Colossians 3, 1 and 2, he specifically says, set your mind on things that are above. And what's interesting is how chapter 3 kind of flows he does get to some very specific, like, put off, put on language. But what is the foundation of that process? It's you thinking. If you remember, uh, we've, we've talked about it on the podcast uh, a long time ago, I think. But there was a, a chapel message where I preached on how to find the perfect woman. And it's finding lady wisdom. And there's a phrase in Ecclesiastes where he's trying to teach someone wisdom. And what does he say? In the day of good, oh yeah, good, rejoice. In the day of evil, consider, think, mm. think about who God is. Set your mind. So that that same idea, Colossians, Ecclesiastes, mm. uh, Romans twelve is very common and popular. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. There's the change of all of you. It's not, I don't, I think he's referring to the whole person there, outside, inside. But that transformation happens how? Through the renewal of your mind. mind. Mm. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self concerning your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So again, we could we could go down a, a long discussion there about two of those infinitives. Yeah. It's the <laughs> two put off and the two put on are aorist. And then there's one that's present. Like you're to continually be doing this one daily. Like the putting off, we could we won't talk about it. Oh, but we should. Well, no, we shouldn't. I think the idea is that you're not, in Ephesians 4, you're not daily put off, renew, put on. Those aorist ones are things that have taken place in your salvation. But the one that you're actively doing each day 
is the renewing of the mind. Mm. And how you do that, well, we'll go down that road. And then the example in 2 Corinthians 10, he says, this is the famous, we take every thought captive. And it's so easy to do this with common verses. What's the context of taking every thought captive? Because he's actually been discussing one thing for almost three chapters. He's been discussing how the Corinthian church had promised a financial gift to Paul and the apostles, and they had not yet given it. They previously were very willing to give the gift, promised the gift, and then their relationship with Paul soured, and they had not yet given the gift. And another very famous verse that's thrown out is, be a cheerful giver. That's earlier in this context. And what Paul was doing with the Corinthians in the letter was reminding them, yeah, God does want you to honor your word. He does want you to give. That's a physical thing. You're writing the check. They didn't have checkbooks with little kittens on them back then. You know, they had their shekels or whatever. But that's a physical thing, right? You're giving the money, like you're putting the money in the plate or the box. Mine is a automatic direct uh, withdrawal every month. I get a thank you notice from my church. Um, it's all electronic, but that's that's a thing that's happening. You know, you're not seeing me motion, but away from my body with my arms, out of me. It's not, that that transaction isn't happening inside of me. It's something I'm doing. I'm giving the money, right? Paul says, right. yeah, God wants you to do that. And God wants you to honor your word. And I want you to honor your word. So that I'm not humiliated and you're not humiliated because I told all these other churches in Macedonia how much you love us and the gift that you'd promised, but you haven't given it yet. Now I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And why does he bring up the idea of being a cheerful giver? Because Paul's trying right. to remind them that what God wants, his will, isn't just the gift of money. He actually is concerned with the inner man, the reason why they're giving it. That being a cheerful giver is more important than being a giver. And in fact, you could be a giver and not be cheerful. And God is, you know, to use the, is it Isaiah language? It says filthy rags. Yeah, it's Isaiah 53. But Isaiah 51 is, the, or Isaiah chapter one is the same idea. Yeah. It's, it's like, God doesn't want it. It's like, get out of here. And so I actually think in, back in chapter 10, Paul is illustrating how he and the apostles are not like that. How they, in humility, guard themselves from not, um, uh, what's a good way of saying it? From, from not obeying fully. How do they guard themselves from that? And the way that they do that is actually the mental thing. It's, it's their minds. So uh, in that context, so eight, chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, he's talking about that financial gift. Both chapters. Then you roll into chapter 10 and just hear, so I, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness. What he's saying is, please give the gift, follow through on your word, you know, let your spoken desire of love match your external obedience so that when I come to you, I don't have to act like I'm writing in this letter. When I come, I want you, I've heard from Titus that you've repented, that you love me, that you have good desires, so follow through in obedience. And then he's talking about himself in this context. That I might not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. And so he's highlighting that in the Corinthian church, there were some that were denying his apostleship, accusing him of doing things the wrong way. And he's like, I don't want to you, Corinthian church, to have to act towards you with this bold, like authoritative manner that I will have to use to the ones who are accusing me and the apostles of walking after the flesh. So then there's like a little parenthesis. How is Paul walking if he's not walking according to the flesh? For though we walk in the flesh, he's not talking spiritually, he's talking physically. Yep, I'm walking around in a body. Though I'm walking around in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The spiritual battle that we're in 
And I would, I think Paul would wholeheart, if he was sitting here next to me, say, like, Charlie, it's fine. Throw the word sanctification right there. We'll get to Galatians 5 on another one of these uh, steps in the process. That war of the spirit and the flesh. He's like, yeah, as we're engaging in the warfare of sanctification, our, our, our war that we're waging is not fleshly. There's a divine power at work here. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So there's a lot going on there. What he says at the end, when your obedience is complete is when I've arrived and if you really have obeyed, and you are, you know, giving the gift, and you're really truly aligned in love with me, then we can follow through. And I think it's church discipline with these unruly false teachers. He goes on to talk about that in 10 and 11. But that phrase there, take every thought captive to obey Christ, that's actually telling you how to do it. How your inner man is important to your sanctification. They take every thought captive. It's a participle, so it's like taking. We're taking every thought captive. Then it's a prepositional phrase, and it's an ace or ice clause. Unto, it's like a directive. We're taking the thoughts captive, which leads us towards something. And what does it lead us towards? The obedience of Christ. This is going to be a great lesson in the genitive case in Greek. I don't want to get too, too far out there, but I heard a great illustration in class like 10 years ago that has always stuck with me. So, Professor Stearns, well done. So, here's the difference between an objective genitive and a subjective genitive. When I was in Greek grammar, there was a really popular movie that came out. It's called The Hobbit. And number two in the trilogy of The Hobbit movies, which is a shame. Amen. But number two was called what, Andy? The Desolation of Smog. Now, do you, do you notice how that phrase is really similar to the obedience of Christ? Mm-hmm. The desolation of smog, the obedience of Christ. Now, whether it's an objective genitive or a subjective genitive completely changes the meaning. Does it mean that smog as the subject is doing the action of the desolating? He's like, a subjective he's like genitive. Out doing all the he's desolate. going to Lake Town and burning it down. He's burning desolating. Smog is desolating. Or is it objective that he gets killed in Lake Town and he, as the object, received the desolating? Which one is it? And that's actually kind of the genius of it, is it is both. It's both, yeah. It's yeah, gotta be. But now think about that in 2 Corinthians 10. Is it the obedience of Christ as the subject? His obedience that we attain, we, we're getting closer towards his obedience as the subject of the one doing it, or are we giving obedience to him, the object? And I actually think that's the right way to take it. It's objective. Because the thrust of this passage has been on what they are doing, not on what Christ was doing. So as they are taking captive thoughts, they are getting closer to giving their obedience to him. So if you neglect to take thoughts captive, to focus, to engage, address your inner man in your sanctification, if you neglect to remember that God's will is in you, it's going to be harder for you to get closer to giving obedience to Christ. That verse actually directly ties your mental game to your obedience game <laughs> and uh, that you need, you, you need to think about what's going on inside of you or you should be engaging in, in thought. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Our warfare is not out here. It's in here. And that's where the spirit of God is empowering us to think according to truth and then act according to right desire. But it's starting in them. And I think he's, sharing that with the Corinthians who were grappling with that same problem, who really wanted to give a gift. They said they really wanted to, but then inside of them, in their relationship with Paul, gets bad. What had they not done? They hadn't given the gift. And she's like, you need to think about why you're not doing the things you're supposed to do. 
It's okay. I'm not, back in chapters 8 and 9, I'm not commanding you to give the gift. It's free of compulsion. It's voluntary. But God wants you to do it. It's like, what is he trying to get them to think about? Ah, it's not just giving the money. We actually have to want to give the money. We have to be cheerful. Well, I'm not cheerful. What do I do? I need to repent. <laughs> so thinking through your inner man as you're engaging in the process is really helpful because that helps you attain to the full picture that transformation is all of you that includes your inner man. There is a possibility that you do a lot of things, but you're never really thinking through why you're doing it. I mean, I think I've met probably, uh, you know, I don't want to be too grandiose on the number, but probably dozens, if not hundreds of Christians who are more than willing to give the check. They want to pay the tithe, but are they really doing it because they love the right things or is it just because that's what they're supposed to do? You know, like, are they really truly a cheerful giver? And, and I don't think that means you have to always be cheerful. Like the moment you're not cheerful, your gifts are gone, you know, like, but that you're addressing those loves as you give. And I, and I try to, I don't do this now that I'm, you know, it's deducting out of my, my paycheck. I actually really like that because it, it, whenever I would write the check out, I would have this little battle in my mind of like, well, how much are you going to, well, you know. Uh, how much of, is a cheerful amount, you know? Yeah, how Am much I being is a cheerful amount? Like, ugh. But in, it's, it's not even about the amount. It's like within your means, are you giving because you want to give back to Christ who gave himself for you? And he, he lays that theological foundation back in, in chapters 8 and 9. But here's the point. I think Second Corinthians gives a really good illustration of what most people try to do but do not do. Most people would look at that issue and just be like, well, just give the money. And Paul actually says, no, don't just give the money. Take your thoughts captive. Your warfare is not external. It's not about money. It's not about what your church needs and doesn't need. It's about you wanting to give. And what's so interesting with this church is that this church had promised him a gift and then they got upset with him they had false teachers come in and steer them away from Paul. And Paul's like, so do you really want to give the gift, huh? You know, have you really, do you really want to give that gift still? And, you know, he had heard from Titus, who just come from Corinth. Oh, yeah, they love you, Paul. And he's like, do you really? Then, then show it. You know, if your desires are right, take the thoughts captive, make sure you're doing it for the right reason, and then follow through, give the gift. So I don't know if that makes sense, but roll up the ball yarn. The whole point of the first question, what is God's will? This passage, along with Romans, along with Colossians, along with Ecclesiastes, there's many, many, many more highlight to you that God's will and sanctification is not only external. It's not only internal. It's both. But I think we very easily focus on what we're doing, and it's, it's harder to focus on why we're doing what and to stimulate sanctification, to engage in discipleship, one of the easiest things you can do, which is what these questions are for, is to focus your mind on the inner man. You know, focus your mind on your mind. Like think about why you're thinking about things. To think about why you're feeling things. To think about why or what you're wanting. And as you do that, it's going to help you align your desires and your thoughts with God's. It's going to help all of you to love all of him. And so when you ask yourself, what is God's will? The big idea, God's will is in you. He wants to transform your inner man. And then as a part of that transformation, your whole person is going to look different. So what do you guys think about that? Thoughts? I think you're right on. And God's will, okay, is your sanctification your main premise here is that your sanctification is not what you're doing, but what you're desiring, what you want. And so as we begin a new year, I would encourage you to reflect upon what do you want and transform those desires one step at a time. I pray at the end of this year that there would be some transformation of your desires that you might see uh, in that progressive sanctification. There's some good stuff there. I think 
I appreciate this because it gives hope to to those who have been battling sin. And it's, it, it, I mean, even doing this, the battle goes on your whole life. Yeah. But this gives you the ability to see maybe something you haven't been seeing. And that's why I appreciate what you're bringing up here is maybe you're someone who's been working at the Christian life, I air quote on that, working, and we're supposed to work. But if it's it's like not knowing the source of all these uh, actions and, you know, so I appreciate that it, it helps us to see, hey, here's where the real battle is taking place. This is where everything's coming from. And uh, I also like the will of God thing. That's that's very helpful. I do think there's a lot of people who, when they think of will, the will of God, and it's not wrong to think about what job you're going to work at and who you're going to marry and all that. Those are a part of it. They are. They are. They're a part yeah. of it. But But I would even say maybe scripturally a much larger part of God's will is the internal as opposed to the external. So I appreciate this a lot. I and really so, appreciate this. Just to give you an idea of where we're going. So this is section one, discovering God's will. And I mean that that'll sell, right? That'll you know oh, yeah. that'll preach. Oh yeah. You want to find out God's will for your life? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's actually not that crazy. It's like he just wants to change you each day. It's a really good juke. I'm excited yeah. about it. Just whoosh. Um so question one, what is God's will? It, well, it's internal. God's will is internal. Number two is how does God accomplish his will? His will internal transformation, is God doing things every day in my life to transform my inner man? The answer is yes. And the scriptures are very clear on that. What is he doing every day? That's the next question. And then uh, I won't give away the third question because it gives away the answer to the second one. It makes you have to come back and listen. But let me give you just, I want to close with an example of what I'm talking about that maybe illustrates very clearly how both sides of the coin work together. And one side of the coin is addressing your inner man. And the other side of the coin is addressing your outer man. So following through and and obedience, doing the right things, making the right choices, how those are tied to the inner man. I was meeting with uh, a friend a while back and he was expressing struggle with pornography. And so how do you tackle that issue, right? Well, there's some people that are like, get covenant eyes, you know, take all the things off your phone, you know, set up accountability. And I'm not against any of that, but those are external answers. You know, those well, are a means to an end. Yes. And, and the it, end is? Means of grace. The means is don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but so what I tried to connect the dots with that friend is, hey, habitual sin is a result of habitual desire, always. And those decisions are starting in you. And as we're going to look at the next couple questions in the discipleship series, God is actually very aware and engaged in showing you when your desires go off. And so I just highlighted to this guy, hey, has God done any of these things in your life? Has he, has he tried to show you these things? And he's like, well... No, the whole week was great. And then Saturday night, I failed. It was just like out of nowhere. And I was like, well, was it really out of nowhere? And so we started looking back through the week. Well, what happened on Monday? What happened on Tuesday? What happened on Wednesday? And again, this is going to give away the answers. You know, you see cheating on the quiz here. But, well, actually what happened on Monday was there was a big conflict at work. And he was really upset with his coworkers said some things he shouldn't say. Then on Wednesday, there was actually a conflict with his boss and didn't say or do anything wrong, but he was really angry with his boss when he got home from work on Wednesday. And what are those? Those are signs not of the Spirit of God. Those are signs of flesh control, internal anger, and then that anger coming out and lashing out at a coworker, that's a surefire sign to you that you're not under the control of the Spirit of God. And it's like, so there were some promptings in your life there where it seemed like God had allowed some things to show you, man, these desires might be getting out of control. Well, did you do anything about that on Monday or Wednesday? No. So you're telling me on Monday you got upset with a coworker and you didn't... You didn't address that issue in your inner man in all week? No, I didn't. Well, then it doesn't surprise me then on Saturday night that you're still walking in the flesh, right? 
like, huh. And it's like the whole point of that was like that one issue that you want to isolate is actually tied to a whole ball of desire. And God had actually allowed him to see that earlier, but he didn't know what he was looking for. And then he started thinking through daily, like, okay, where is God showing me what's at work in there? And that was a big step for him. And, uh, and I, I've had those same conversations with myself <laughs> and, uh, but that, that's the idea is that as you ask yourself, maybe at the end of a day, you know, maybe you listen to this at night, maybe you, ask, you, you listen to this podcast in the morning, I don't know, but try to find a time in your day where you can ask yourself just that first question, what is God's will? God's will is my inner man being changed. And are there any moments throughout my day that just happened or maybe yesterday where I saw what was at work in there and it maybe wasn't the Holy Spirit. And you start trying to think that through. I've actually re highly recommend getting a journal and writing down days of the week. And like, did God show me any things about my inner man throughout the week? And as you start focusing on that, you're setting your mind directly on God's will for your life. You're setting your mind specifically on the work of transformation that he wants to do in you. And so as we narrow the questions down, it's actually going to get more specific to, well, what about this? And what about this? And every one of us, if you ask these questions of yourself, every one of them, you're going to be like, oh yeah. And that's not a negative thing. That's actually a really good thing. It's because God is doing this every day of our lives. And so hope that helps you as we continue to walk through the discipleship series. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.